0: Heavenly Father, this morning we do marvel at your redeeming love. That you would send your Son, your only begotten Son, to die for me. To bear my penalty because of my sin as undeserving as I am. And yet how glorious your love. How great your mercy. Lord, it is in that hope, your redeeming, your sustaining love that we gather here this morning and we respond in worship. As we lift your name in song, as we respond in giving, Even now as we turn our attention to this passage, turning our minds to what you have done for us in Christ, and then practically what that looks like for us day in and day out, Lord, I pray that this morning our hearts would be open to your spirits leading through the word. I pray that you would work molding us into your image for your purpose. I pray that you would give me boldness and authority to preach the truth of the word of God with power, with clarity. That your name may be lifted high. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you have ever seen the show, Antique Roadshow? You can raise your hand. Antique Roadshow. I remember as a kid watching it often. It would be on during the daytime on TV. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's it's a show where people bring things that they found at garage sales or something that's been in their basement or just something they've had around their house and they bring it to these people who all gather in one place to, to better understand what it is, to get it appraised. One of the most valuable things ever appraised on Antique Roadshow is a 1904 Diego Rivera oil painting. It was when Antique Roadshow stopped in Corpus Christi, Texas, back in 2012. And the man brought the painting, that, and he said it had been hanging behind a door in their house. After examining it, the painting was authenticated and it was appraised to be worth $800,000 to $1 million. I don't know. The the show kind of stops there. This is what it's worth. I don't know what went on to happen to that painting. But I can guarantee you one thing that that painting did not go back up on the wall behind a door. You see, when an item is properly valued, it will be properly treated. In fact, practically, just think of your pockets or of your your car or even your house. You, You probably have change lying around. You don't think twice about it. But if you have a $100 bill, chances are that it's tucked away safely in your wallet or your purse. You know exactly where it is. You're going to be mindful of it. Or in this case, a painting that, that might ha- ha- hang behind a door when it's simply a decoration. But when it becomes known that that painting is worth almost a million dollars, it will likely not hang on the wall at all. It will likely be stored in a climate-controlled, safe environment somewhere. Because the reality is, when you rightly understand the value of an item, you will give appropriate attention and care to that item. Our passage this morning calls us to rightly understand and value the high calling of marriage. And therefore, understanding that, rightly valuing marriage, to be fiercely faithful to our God given responsibilities in marriage. And so this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we will see a powerful example and a purposeful call. May the Lord work through his word this morning for his glory. Just a heads up, my first point is a lot longer than my second point, so if we get into this and you're thinking, man, there's another one of these, the second one's a little shorter, so don't, don't worry about that. But the first thing we see is a powerful picture in Ephesians 5, 28-32. Verse 28 starts out with the word, so, that's a clue that there's a context here, there's something going on. We were in this passage last week, we saw, going back to even verse 25, husbands, love your wives. In what way? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that has a goal that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word that He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is a high calling, husbands. This is a great task to which we have been called. So... Based on this, so husbands ought to. There's an obligation here. This is the completely natural response. You ought to love your own wife as their own bodies. A couple things to note here. First, husbands ought to love their own wives just as the wife's though the woman's call is not to submit to all men, but for the wife to submit to her own husband, so it is not a call for men to love all women in the way that they love their wife, rather in this special, unique way, your own wife. Love her in this sacrificial way. But then there's the end of this phrase, which almost strikes us as strange. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own Bodies. It almost The passage seems to take a turn that we don't expect it to take. In fact, it almost seems at first like Paul is kind of cheapening the call. He's going from this redeeming, heavenly love of God to sacrifice for the sake of His bride to then saying, love your wife as you love yourself. Seems almost cheap. But rightly understood, this is not a cheapening. Rather, it's a practical picture of what the sacrificial love looks like. The idea here is not a selfish pampering, rather, it's natural self care. It is love for the good of the whole. This body, this connection, husband and wife. In fact, the, the drive behind this, the background behind this entire passage, what Paul is really getting at is that husband, your wife, is an integral part of who you are. In fact, he'll even get down to the passage in Genesis 2 that you are one flesh. This is a unique union. And so the reality is that her good is your good. When you love her sacrificially, you are loving yourself because you are one flesh with her. It's like your arm. Think of your arm and your leg. They're part of one body. Or your whole... Your whole body, every, every part of it, if, if, if you get a shot, that's for the good of the whole body, but it's the arm that has to take the pain of the shot, right? But the arm does that because it's good not just for the arm, it's good for the whole. That is a picture of this sacrificial love, a willingness to give up, but, but it's not just you're losing something. By loving her, you're loving yourself. You are one body. So think of an ankle. I have weak ankles. I have often hurt my ankles, twisted, sprained, broken my ankles. When my ankle is hurt, my arm isn't sitting there laughing like, ha, it's about time. <laughs> or my arm cares for my ankle because my arm needs my ankle to get where my arm wants to go. My arm needs my ankle and my ankle needs my arm. It's part of one body, each fulfilling a role for the good of the whole. And that is the picture here. Like a hand or a foot that seeks the good of the body, so must be the husband and wife who in their faithfulness to their roles seek the good of the whole. One commentator puts it this way. This idea of a wife being a part of the husband's self is important. It means that marriage is not supposed to be a tug of war for power. Each member of a marriage is a free agent before God who acts for the union. It is not the duty of the wife to tell her to tell him to love her. It is his duty to the Lord to love her. The same is true in reverse. It is not the duty of the husband to tell the wife to submit. It is her responsibility before the Lord to do so. It means that each partner speaks about or to an issue. They are both to pursue one voice before the Lord. That may not always mean agreement, but it will mean harmony about what does get decided. When I listen to my wife, I am hearing a part of myself and listening for God, perhaps speaking through her. The idea that the couple is a team is expressed in this one-flesh idea. The identity of the whole working together is the most important point here. This is not self-love, but a self-giving love. A self-giving love for something greater and more than one's own self. So this remark promotes the bride is not lower in social status, but as equal to his husband, even a part of him. Husbands, love your wives as your own body because she is part of your body. She is a vital part of you. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh. Going back to the illustration earlier, right? A, a husband and a wife who hate each other makes as much sense as a, hand that hate its, as a hand that hates its feet or its head that hates another part of the body that it needs. Your arm cannot function. There is no life for your arm when separated from the body. That's the idea here husband and wife, are needed for the whole. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Nourishes and cherishes. The idea there of nourish is to provide necessary, or to, bro- to provide the necessities, it, it is to foster growth in. My grandmother had a little plot, plot a little pot outside of her ha- house that said, I tried, but it died. <laughs> she was not a gardener, and, uh, and I got that passed down to me. I am not a gardener at all. That's not just that's not a world that I operate in. But on the other side, there's my brother-in-law, Peter. Peter loves it, and he is great at it. In fact, I talked last week. I gave the illustration of the time that I was house-sitting. For Peter, I have plant-sitted before. He knows what that plant needs. He knows how much water, how much sun. He gives the time to it. The right soil for it to to, to be nourished. To get those things that are proper for it. To foster growth for that specific type of plant. Husbands, that is the idea here. That you would nourish your wife in this way. That you would know what she needs. That you would... Put her in a position that that fosters growth, that you would encourage that, investing in her, providing what she needs. Nourishing. Back to the illustration even of an arm and a hand with that hurt ankle. The hand will nourish the ankle. It will help to give its rest. It will wrap it. It will hold ice on it. It needs that angle to get better so it invests time and energy into helping it get better. Into fostering growth and healing. Not just nourishing, but even cherishing. Husband, ch- nourish and cherish your wife. The idea of cherish is to handle with care. In fact, the word itself in the original language has the literal idea of to keep warm. Like sitting on a cold night. And she's sitting next to you and she's, she's, she's colder. So you take the uh, blanket and you wrap it around her. Or you take your coat off to give it to her. There is cherishing there to keep her warm. Even though you told her to bring a coat and she still didn't. but you love her, so you're willing to nourish, you're willing to cherish, to, to handle with care, even to take pride in. Think even of fine china. Right, you put it on display in the house, it's beautiful, and when you use it, it's only on nice occasions. You bring it out, you say, you're very, very careful with it. You're very mindful with it. It's not something you just drop in the sink, you, you move it with care. That's the idea here. This is a love that is nourishing and cherishing. A love that is intimately invested in the good and the health and the growth of the other. Recognizing that her growth and her her good is your growth and your good. In fact, as the statement goes on, but nourishing and cherishing it just as the Lord does the church. Husbands, don't miss that once again your example in this high calling to love is none other than Jesus' perfect love for you. Talk about a challenge. You are to nourish and cherish your wife in the same way that the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. Church. In fact, we saw last week that through the cross, the the cross powerfully and passionately proclaims the love of Christ. But what we see this week in this passage is that though the cross does powerfully and passionately proclaim the love of Christ, it does not exhaust the love of Christ. Rather, he continues to, to proclaim his love through his sustaining, empowering, and caring for the church. So, likewise, you must sustain, empower, care for your bride, nourishing and cherishing. It's almost as if the the flow of this passage starts out with you must love your wife because she is part of your body, you are one flesh. How do you love your wife in this way? You nourish and cherish her. But then it's almost moving now backwards. Just as Jesus nourished and cherished the church. Why? Because she's part of his one body. It's the same idea. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. In fact, note one thing here. Paul moves from general. Husbands and wives do this. You must do this. He must do this. To now personal, we, for we are members. This is true of me. This is not just instruction for the married. This is hope for the Christian. You are a part of his body, of the church. In fact, this is a topic that's been touched on several times throughout the book of Ephesians. Paul's used this picture of the church as the body of Christ, going back even to Ephesians 4, verses 15 to 16. Ephesians 4, 25, even leaving Ephesians to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31. This idea is that the, the church is the body of Christ. There's a unique connection here. A unity unlike any other members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. So for this reason, here in verse 31, Paul goes back to Genesis 2.24. And this passage is really the foundation on which this whole passage is written. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In the original context, for this reason, or therefore, in the original context of Genesis 2, it's the idea that that Eve was created from Adam and for Adam by God, a unique relationship created by God. So because Eve was made for Adam and from Adam, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This leaving is not an abandoning of father and mother. There's still the responsibility to honor your father and mother, but that changes as this relationship changes. And this unique marriage union The husband and wife, their primary earthly identity changes from son or daughter to now husband and wife. He's joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a unique oneness. A unity unlike any other relationship. It is pictured beautifully in the sexual act of marriage and the resulting fruit of the womb. This is a unique relationship. A one flesh union. And the amazing thing is, as you go into verse 32, That Paul here takes what seems to be plain at face value and he unveils the gospel truth behind it. This one flesh union, it is unique. It is different from every other relationship and it points to a gospel truth. Verse 32, this is a great mystery. That idea of mystery is found in Ephesians, Ephesians 1-9, Ephesians 3-3, Ephesians 3-9. Biblically, specifically here in Ephesians, mystery, is the idea of what was once unknown, now made known. This was once, we, we did not see this, but now God has made it clear. So this truth about marriage, though once it was unknown... Now, God has made it clear. What is this truth that he is getting at? It is the simple reality that we see in this passage that as Adam was one flesh with his bride, so Christ is one flesh with his bride. It is the gospel truth that marriage points to the glorious union of Christ and his church. It's the very thing that Paul says here. This is a great... Mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, your marriage testifies to eternal, redemptive truths. The marriage relationship lays the necessary groundwork for us to understand our union with Christ and our hope in Him. There's another quote that I think explains this excellently. A commentator says this, undergirding how we see the most basic of human relationships as presented in Genesis 2.24 is how God relates to his own community that is also called his body. This connection could only be understood once the undergirding model of marriage was in place. So the mystery in part includes this element of revealing the parallel between the human relationship and the relationship of Christ to the church which the human relationship is to model. After centuries and centuries of understanding the unique connection of a husband and a wife in marriage that is unlike any other relationship, then Christ steps in to redeem his bride so that we can understand the gospel and our unique unity to him as one flesh. In fact, we've used the, the phrase before of the Proto-Evangelium. That is the first gospel. So when you, when you start in Genesis, you see the creation of the world, you see the fall of man. And when, when theologians use the idea of the Proto-Evangelium, what they mean is the first place in the Bible where we see hope of salvation that is coming. Often they, they refer to Genesis 3.15 where the Lord promises I will crush the head of the serpent. But based on this passage, you could make a a case that even Genesis 2.24 is the first promise of the gospel. Though unknown and unable to be recognized until Christ's coming, even in that marriage union that God set up, there is a promise of a coming union, a coming hope our union to Christ as the church. So understanding all of this, this powerful picture, this unique union and this call then as husbands to love our wives in this way, Paul returns to this call a purposeful call to a husband and wife to fulfill their roles. Nevertheless or so. It's the same expectation that Paul has already mentioned in this passage, but now there is added weight to it. It's as if when you're, when you're a kid and your parents say, go clean your room. But then they add to it, clean your room because the President of the United States is coming. There's added weight to that. Now there's a, there's, it's not just to clean my room, but there's a reason, a very heavy and real reason to clean my room. Paul has stated, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But now as he comes to the end of this passage, after explaining this picture, after explaining Christ's love and the high call to submission, the high call to sacrificial, nourishing and cherishing love, There's now added weight to this call. So each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. The call to love your wife is not arbitrary. It is purposeful. It is weighty. It is rooted in the gospel itself. And note how Paul really kind of digs down, like pointing right at you, you in particular. Don't look to someone else, look within. Not that guy over there, you. You are responsible to love your wife in this way. You are the one who must ask yourself what does it look like for me today? To nourish and cherish my wife, loving her sacrificially as Christ loved the church, even as I love my own body. You must ask yourself today how can I foster growth in my wife? How can I cherish her today? You, in particular, love your own wife as yourself. This unique union. This one flesh union. It stands out against every other relationship. I use this illustration sometimes in marriage counseling. But when Chris and I were Getting married, we had a friend who would do a lot of things with us, and uh, he made a comment one time. He said, man, once you guys get married, then I'll just be the constant third wheel. You ever heard that phrase, third wheel? It's the idea of someone who doesn't really fit. You got the two together, and then there's the one, the third wheel. And, uh, And my response to that in the moment, I don't know where this came from, but I said, no, once we get married, we're one wheel, so you're still the second wheel. Guys, you're one wheel. So be fully invested in that one wheel. Love your wife as you love yourself because she is an integral part of who you are. Secondly, the call for the wife. Restated here, after the weight of all of this passage and the husband's high calling. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just as the husband is called to take his call seriously, so wife, you must take your call seriously. We spent two weeks on the husband, only one week on the wife, as Paul does in this passage. Only three verses to the wife, eight verses to the husband. And yet, wife, you're not off the hook. In fact, at the end here, note that Paul kind of adds to his instruction for the wife. There's a different word here. He doesn't say, let the wife see that she submits to her husband, as he had said earlier. There's a different word here. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. In fact, the idea behind that word respect is the biblical word fear. Not fear, as in being afraid of, fleeing in terror from your husband. But fear, as in reverence, showing deference to. The general idea of the fear of the Lord, even that we see in Proverbs. Really, what Paul is doing here is he's getting to the heart behind your submission. Paul doesn't just call for external compliance. He calls for the heart motivation of respect behind that submission. Don't just submit. Submit out of respect. Submit out of a a godly fear for your husband. Show deference to him, understanding his high call to love you. So, as we come to the end of this passage, it is both a comforting reminder for the Christian of our union to Christ. And a call to faithful action in marriage. In one sense, this passage is a gospel passage. It's a reminder that you have no righteousness of your own. Even, as Isaiah 64 tells us, that even your good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags before a holy God. And yet, praise the Lord that your hope is not in those filthy rags. That your hope is in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. A righteousness that is yours by way of your one flesh union with Him. In Christ, not only do you have hope for eternity, but you have a Savior who nourishes and cherishes you even now for His glory. For you are His body. Even if you are single here today, you can rejoice in the reality as you marvel at God's love. Rejoice in the gospel proclamation of Ephesians 5, 28-33. And yet this gospel reality also adds weight to your marriage responsibility. Husband, you must love your wife sacrificially. You must understand that you are united to her as one flesh. You must not merely tolerate her. Rather, your loving headship must nourish and cherish her. Wife, you must submit to your own husband. Understanding that you are united to him as one flesh, not merely to tolerate him, but you must respect him. As a husband and wife, biblically love and submit, according to their God-given responsibilities, they empower each other, they foster growth, and they proclaim the message of faith and hope that baffles a watching world. So brothers and sisters, as we close this passage, be faithful in the power of the Spirit, even as you marvel at the love of God. For your temporal marriage... Is founded upon and boldly proclaims the eternal truth of God's great love. So, husbands, be faithful in loving your wife sacrificially. And, wives, be faithful in respecting your husband and in submitting to his rule as God appointed head. Both members, For the good of the whole, one body stepping in unity for God's glory.